0: University professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And today with me on the line is one of our original OG Deconstruction Workers, Dr. Rick Stevens. Dr. Stevens is an associate professor of media studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. And he and I have been working together for a really long time. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you kind of know all about the relationship between Dr. Stevens and I. So welcome back to the show, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for hanging out today. So today what we are talking about is a thing that Rick and I talk about. Pretty much all the time. He and I are writing partners. We've been doing research together for a really long time. And one of the things our research always seems to come back to is this idea of political economy and the consolidation of media corporations. And so today is really more of a talk about ownership and production of popular culture than it is a deep dive into any particular. Kind of popular culture. We're doing more of an umbrella, top level, 30,000 feet meta analysis of things rather than as we normally do, breaking apart one particular piece of popular culture. For those of you who are new to media studies, let's start by talking about what political economy is because it's a term we use a lot. Even on this show, we've used it quite a bit, but you may not be familiar with it. So Political economy at its very, I don't know, bottom, its very base, is exactly what it sounds like. It's about the way that politics affect economy, but it's really so much more than that. So, Rick, do you want to jump in and sort of give us a, a ground floor view of political economy, and then we'll work our way up?
1: It's also about the economy of politics as well. It works kind of both ways, but typically when we're talking about the political economy of media, we're thinking about who owns what ultimately so that we can track power structures you know, between different groups and within organizations so that we can ultimately determine who gets to speak, how decisions are made about what culture will and won't be produced and what values are embedded in it. So when we're talking about fan culture, we're often talking about why this particular version of something got made, or, or why this text had to have certain elements in it or not. And behind all of that is who gets to make stuff, and above all of them are who hires them, who owns them, who gets to own properties and determine what decisions can and can't be made about it, and of course, who has the rights to produce something in various media formats or forms, and and who has the rights to distribute, and who has the rights to consume. All of those things are a part of this ever-evolving equation that we refer to as political economy.
0: One of the phrases that I've used several times on this show and that I use all the time with my students is, When you control the means of production, you get to control the narrative. Right. And that is really at the root of political economy. When you are the owner of the company that makes a thing, you have say over what is in it and you have say over what kinds of stuff gets made in the first place. And so this is the root of political economy. It's the way how certain people see the world affects what kinds of things get published or get produced or get distributed in terms of popular culture in our society. Political economy has taken a huge turn over the last, I would say, two years. In that, up until two years ago, 90% of American media were owned by about six companies. And in the last two years, we have had two gigantic mergers. And those two gigantic mergers have kind of changed the landscape of political economy of media. The first merger, the earlier merger, was the merger of AT&T with what at the time was AOL Time Warner, or what is now called Warner Media. So AT&T buys out Warner Media and instantly moves Time Warner From the number five slot to the number three slot. Then the second thing that happened is Disney was able to buy out a really large chunk of Fox or what was news core. Fox was sitting at the number four. Four slot Disney was sitting at number two, and the merger has really solidified Disney into the number two spot. Of course, number one being NBC Universal Comcast, which is the, the juggernaut of media. So Disney and Fox's merger, and AT and T and Warner Media's merger, have significantly changed the game in terms of the way that culture is going to be produced going forward. Because now AT and for example owns HBO, they own DC Comics, they own CNN, they own TNT and TBS, all of those former Warner stations, plus Warner Brothers in terms of film production, and so forth. Disney now owns a gigantic swath of particularly television. Disney now owns everything ever made by 20th Century Fox in terms of its movie collection, in terms of its television collection. It now owns FX. It owns National Geographic. It owns a majority stake in Hulu. It owns everything that was News holdings except for Fox Sports, Fox News, and the actual Fox Television Network. Everything else went to Disney. So those two mergers are huge for the landscape of of media production.
1: They are. We also should point out that this is also the continuation of a trend that's been going on for the last couple of decades as well. So one little nerd moment I'm going to insert here. When Ronald Reagan won the presidency in 1980. There was a book that came out in 1983 by Ben Bagdikian called The Media Monopoly. And in this book he was talking about what had happened under Ronald Reagan's reconstituted FCC agenda when we're thinking about how regulatory structures and ownership are going to be determined at the governmental level. And at that time, what Bagdikian was saying was, Never before in the history of Western media, but certainly American media, have 50 companies own 90% of the content that's being produced. And of course, what happened was that trend kept accelerating. He wrote another book two years later and said, now 25 companies, and then it was 12, and then it was 10, then it was eight, then it was five or six. And now we're at this new moment where suddenly the concentration is getting greater, because that's what happens in a true free market system is that you have this run towards consolidation. Money gets more property, begets more money, gets more, just more concentration. And so we, we talk about this concentration of ownership issue. But meanwhile, for people that are interested in culture and fans, all of your favorite titles are wrapped up in all of these webs of networks of rights, because just because one company owns the rights to, say, Marvel Comics. It does not mean they have the rights to the films of that. It does not mean that they have the rights to the television production of that text. And those have been spread out all over the mediascape because of Marvel Comics going bankrupt in the 90s and selling off those rights. Disney buying Fox brings home a lot of those rights into one place and that's one of the agendas that they had only disney can have so much money that in order to secure the rights to some properties they just buy most of a company
0: we want our wolverine back right so we'll just buy fox exactly one of the other things i that this conglomeration in terms of fan culture in terms of what we like and don't like is it brings together some really interesting bedfellows for example Disney buying Fox gives them control over Blue Sky. Blue Sky is an animation company. And Blue Sky has done a bunch of stuff. The biggest thing that Blue Sky did was the Ice Age series. Blue Sky has also recently done the Peanuts movie. So they have the Charles Schultz contract, which could be very interesting for Disney to have access to Charlie Brown. They also did Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. Rio. Rio, in particular, in my house is a big deal. (laughs) My family is, is very much in love with Rio. Epic was done by Blue Sky. And most importantly, Horton Hears a Who was done by Blue Sky, which... Also now gives Disney access to the Dr. Seuss contracts, which for whatever, whatever, Disney's a big deal, but so is Dr. Seuss. And now having access to that contract is an enormous deal for Disney. So Blue Sky, as an animation house, does Disney keep them open? I don't know. They already own two animation houses. They own the in-house Disney and they also own Pixar. Right. Do you really leave Blue Sky floating out there?
1: It just kind of depends because I mean that was with Pixar, you know, that that whole situation which of course you're you're much more <laughs> involved <laughs> and versed in, but there were thoughts that when Disney acquired Pixar that they might just subsume it because there was that competition element between the two product lines. But as it turned out, that brand turned out to be valuable in and of itself. And and of course, disrupting the organization. I mean, all of these things kind of go into decisions about whether you take out a competitor and take the profitable content and integrate it or just let them run as an SBU separately that you control and get
0: the money from. Right. Right. Well, and this also doesn't include all the movies that were made by Fox's animation division, Fox Animation Studios, before it folded as well. So, for example, Fox Animation Studios owns all the Don Bluth licenses. Mm -hmm. Finally, Disney owns Anastasia. Anastasia was made specifically to combat Disney's princess films. Now they own it. Do they incorporate Anastasia? Do they bring her into the fold? turbo was made by Fox Animation Studios. I wonder also if this Fox deal gives them access to before Fox was purchased, it had a partial stake in Dreamworks. Oh, yeah. I wonder I wonder what that relationship is because if Dreamworks is also on the line in this merger, well that gives them all kinds of stuff. That gives them everything from Trolls to Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. So uh, I'm just, I'm very, very interested to see what Disney does with what they now own.
1: Yeah. Well, and of course, the, even the, the implications for the existing properties that they have, the early speculation, of course, you know, we mentioned the Marvel, but getting 20th Century Fox suddenly does a few things for the Star Wars franchise that were still a little bit split. You know, Disney owned the rights to new films, but part of the deal was that they would not remake, retouch, or re-release the original Star Wars films, now in theory it now just comes down to how was that contract written? Was this a contract with George Lucas or was this a contract with Fox? And I think we're about to find that out. They are going to be releasing finally a new Blu-ray set but right now the word is that they're not going to... (laughs) The big question a lot of people have is can Disney undo the changes that George Lucas made to his own films contractually? Hmm. Able to until this time, but now we're in a new situation and we're about to see. Probably what we're going to see is that it is still going to be, just like with the DVD set a few years ago, the special editions, because at that time, the the George Lucas rule was still in effect. In other words, his... Changes could not be undone. That was part of the contract. But going forward, it's going to be interesting to see how these relationships evolve, even for that franchise, which you know has been in, in the Disney camp for quite a while at this point.
0: It's such an interesting landscape right now in terms of the way that these murders have taken place and what gets put on the line now. Disney's acquisition of Fox, for example, just get your brain around this. Disney's acquisition of Fox gives Disney the rights over The Simpsons. Yeah. Which has a theme park at Universal Studios Florida, which is now a triple licensing issue. Right. (laughs) Fox had licensed out to Universal, and now Disney owns Fox, so now it's three steps down the line. Now, when Disney purchased Marvel, it left Islands of Adventure open, at Universal Studios in Florida. Mm -hmm. So they've already kind of have that relationship But this is what we mean about buying a company doesn't necessarily give you all the stuff.
1: Well, and it may not, it doesn't always behoove them to use all the stuff at once. I mean, you know, sometimes it's priorities and timing in terms of, of what they'll do. My understanding is that, you know, they're now exploring a Marvel theme park. What does that do to the earlier arrangements? That's been an interesting set. I mean, for a while, for example, there was the relationship between Marvel and Netflix, to offer up those live-action shows. But when Disney comes up with its streaming platform and acquires the portion of Hulu and starts positioning to roll out all of its branded content onto one streaming channel, Netflix lost that license. It wasn't renewed. The relationships sometimes temporarily stay in place when interests don't align with the opportunities. It just, sometimes timing is what this is is about. So in other words, for those listening, I'm saying the universe could have radically changed and we not see the full effects of it for quite some time, depending on the order or the markets or, you know, just the priorities inside the company of what they want to do when.
0: There's another part of this puzzle that has been really fascinating to me in the short term, based on what's happening as of the time of this recording, which is the fight over the rights to Spider-Man. <laughs> so, so let me give a little primer real fast yeah. those
1: that, are, that are listening to get us up to this point. I'll skip over most of the gory details, but in the 1980s, first of all, people I don't think realize how many times that the company that was Timely Comics that became the Atlas Magazine distribution center that then became Marvel Comics distributed ironically by National Comics DC Comics how many times that company almost went out of business along the way and some of its most popular points even but in the 1980s when Marvel was starting to explore film adaptations and this was one of Stan Lee's passions was to get things on a television and on the film because he saw the explosive power you know in the culture when the adventures of Superman or the Batman 66, 1966 series, or Wonder Woman nineteen seventy seven came onto television and kept trying to replicate that. But in the haste of doing that, this small publishing company started making deals, and you know, Universal got control of Namor and the Hulk, and and you know, there were a lot of moves that were being made, which kind of came to this moment in the 90s when Marvel actually went bankrupt, and and one of the ways that they sought to emerge from bankruptcy was to sell the rights, the movie rights, to their characters away for profit. That created all kinds of bizarre relationships. Spider-Man first, I believe, was owned by... I can't... The order gets so confusing. It was New World canon. It It passed into about six different hands before Sony finally got control of it and decided that they were going to bear down and just wrench it back. So Sony had it.
0: Pause there for one second. Sony gets it primarily for the purposes of PlayStation games.
1: Right, right. But meanwhile, the other thing that's happening when Marvel went bankrupt is there's a huge reorganization And so you've got Sony that's wanting the properties for video games. You've got Toy Biz. Avi Arad steps in from Toy Biz and becomes one of the big players in Marvel. But also he is the person who gets Sony on board to produce these films, saying, you know, you just don't understand. He's looking at it as, I'm sure he wanted these films to be great, but he's also looking at it as, we're going to sell a lot of action figures in Sony, you're going to sell a lot of games. That hyper-commercialism, that synergy was very, very powerful around that. So by the time that Spider-Man movie comes out, there's lots of background merchandising going on that that's pretty powerful most of it away from Marvel. And so Marvel is watching all of this. And then, of course, Fox had X-Men and Fantastic Four and all of those properties. And so they were watching these other studios make money. And up until that point, Marvel had been kind of treating their properties. They had a whole licensing division within their company. That's the way they saw it. So we're going to license this stuff out to people who know how to make that Now, everybody who is a big Marvel head knows the big risks with Iron Man and the MCU. They put everything on the line to make that one film that was so popular. And all of a sudden, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is born. And at that moment, wrestling matches break out all over the place as Marvel Studios is trying to figure out how to get back properties that had previously been sold off. Spider-Man was one of those. Sony, of course, it had two film franchises. None of those films did as well as the very first one, but all were pretty popular. But you could kind of see that there was this constant economic decline as they were going forward. You know, people were really being sucked into the the Marvel Studios ways of doing things. So this deal gets made. We're in 2015. We get Spider-Man and the MCU in, in the Civil War film. The rights are... Very conditional. The MCU is allowed to use Spider-Man in Avengers films. At first, it's rumored there can be no solo Spider-Man film, but now there can. But here are the characters you can use. Here are the characters you can't use. Meanwhile, Sony is developing all of these other ancillary Spider-Man projects just without Spider-Man. That's part of the deal, right? There can only be one Spider-Man
0: at a time. Again, I should point out, Also, during this entire time, the PlayStation version of Spider-Man is selling hundreds of thousands of copies per iteration. Right, the Spider-Man 2000 game, for example, the game that came out in in the year 2000, was the platform base for everything that followed. And they sold that game across Nintendo 64. They sold it across Dreamcast. They sold it for Microsoft Windows. They made a killing on that game and it was the base platform. So they were able to put out four sequels and then it moved to PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4. So Sony's stake in Spider-Man, goes way beyond what they can put on the movie screen.
1: Which is the big difference between Sony and Fox. Right. Because when Fox has a bad Fantastic Four film, that means they're not selling, they're not getting the action figure returns, they're not getting the box office returns, they're, you know, Marvel is going to get any print product returns. It's a different situation than Sony, where the film brings in... That attention to the video game and the video game platform, as Chris was saying, that's the tremendously valuable piece of this. The films are are, are in many ways the advertising for that functionally. I mean, the films are, are, are right. themselves, but they
0: anything they make out of the movie is gravy to what they're making on the PlayStation.
1: So this is why sometimes fans or or even critics get things a little bit backwards when they say, you know, the second Andrew Garfield film underperformed with the female demographic. It didn't bring in the money, so therefore Sony should sell it back uh yeah those video games that right (laughs) you're, you're missing where the dollars are when you think that this is not just a movie studio and that's the other problem with thinking about political economy in simplistic terms and not looking at the vast network is you get caught up that disney has a film coming out and it's going up against a fox film but the stakes aren't the same disney has five or six revenue streams coming off of every one of the films they do fox may or may not and so What's at stake depends on what else is owned and what's leveraged and what cross-promotions are happening and, and and all of these other variables. When Star Wars had the solo film underperform, they sold a ton of toys and beach towels and product. I mean, that first of all, no Star Wars films ever loses money, but... On top of that, it made a ridiculous amount of money from all the merchandise you know, that came with it. And that's just not true of all franchises not and certainly not true of all films. And so people kind of lose sight of that. Well, so getting the Spider-Man component back up, Marvel Studios co-produces two Spider-Man solo films. Both do extremely well. This second, Far From Home, was another billion-dollar movie for them. But when it came time to start talking about the third film, there was a discussion about... If we're going to co-produce this film and, you know, we're going to split the cost 50-50, so we should get the revenue 50-50. And that led to a break between the between the two studios. Sony is interested in continuing the relationship and so is Marvel Studios, but there's this break that happens but it's over the percentages and the money. Now, one fantastic chapter in all of this is as most people know, the third film is now back on Marvel Studios and Sony are back in collaboration and I believe the split is that Sony's only going to put up 25% of the of the production and promotion costs instead of 50. But the way that came about is pretty great. As it turns out, Tom Holland, the actor of Spider-Man in the middle of all this storm, he, of course, is very passionate about this character, this film, the film franchise. He had already kind of signaled that, well, if Sony's going to make Spider-Man films, I'll go be Spider-Man for Sony and instead of for Marvel. And he was kind of talking about that was his intent. Well, as it turns out, a, a story that just broke over the weekend was that The way that this deal came back together was Tom Holland kept pestering both companies and was passing messages to both CEOs begging them (laughs) to come back to the table. And apparently, at least the mythical portion of the story, I'm sure more details will come out, is that as the CEOs heard poor Tom Holland begging that that became a movement back to the table which allowed them to come to a different arrangement and put Kevin Feige back in orbit to put the you know Marvel Studios back on the table everything back together sometimes we talk about all the money and the rights and all of that and it just every once in a while an actor or a fan group reminds people that there's a lot of goodwill and and just fan passion and love built up into invested in some of these franchises. And sometimes in this case, it seems to have made a difference.
0: Yeah. I think the story is fascinating. I think there's one other piece of this story that you left out that also was a huge push for Sony, to fight back against Marvel and the way that Marvel just assumed they were going to continue to let them use Spider-Man. And I will bring that into the conversation right after this break. So we'll be back in two and two. Hang on a second. I know you're sitting there right now enjoying this podcast, The Deconstruction Workers, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? If you have, let me talk to you a little bit about Blueberry.com. Blueberry is the hosting service where The Deconstruction Workers lives and thousands of other podcasts. There are no contracts with Blueberry.com. You can cancel at any time. Blueberry is optimized for Apple, for Google Podcasts, for Spotify. There's free technical support. You are given a free WordPress website. Blueberry.com is an amazing place to host a podcast, and it is very, very affordable. If you'd like to give it a try yourself, Go to www.blubrry.com. Use the promo code PODCASTDCW and get a free month. And now, back to the show. And we're back. So before the break, I said there's a second piece of this story between Sony and Marvel that you kind of left out that I think is hugely important to it. And that is the fact that Marvel kind of felt like when Sony makes movies without them, those movies are terrible. <laughs> and historically speaking, they have not been really great. Both the Andrew Garfield couple and the Topher Grace couple or trio rather, neither of them did the kind of money that Marvel does. I love that you
1: that you take the Toby Maguire series and give it all the to Topher Grace. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Because Topher Grace, of course, appeared in the... Topher Grace is Venom. To be honest, there's in my brain, there's not that much difference between (laughs) Tobey Maguire and Topher Grace. But the monkey wrench that got fired directly into the works was Into the Spider-Verse. When Into the Spider-Verse was produced, that's going not just at Marvel, that's going at Disney itself. Because it's an animated feature. And... What ends up happening is Into the Spider-Verse, made completely without Marvel input, is, you know, it grosses $375 million. It wins the Oscar for Best Animated Picture over Disney Films. And all of a sudden, Sony's in this position where they can say, we'll kill off live-action Spider-Man movies forever. And just do animated movies with Miles Morales. And we have proven we can make money on those. So it behooves Marvel to maybe come to the table a little bit hat in hand. Like, we're sorry we were so mean to you about your Spider-Man movies. (laughs) Well, I don't disagree that that film, which... By the way, as an aside, if you have not seen that film, go see it. It is quite possibly one of the best, not just best superhero movies I've ever seen, but it's one of the best animated movies ever made, I would
1: argue. So many aspects of that film that are just pitch perfect. I'll confess that I was one of the people that saw the trailer in a theater while I was watching something else and thought, what are they doing? Man, Sony just can't get their act together, and that film film was a revelation. It completely surprised me when I went to see it. My nine-year-old and I have seen it several times, and I'm, I'm just stunned how good that was. So I think that success, but particularly the critical success, Disney has shown in the past a tendency to have discomfort when its obvious commercial success is almost never in question, but not being able to get that kind of cultural capital of getting the recognition and winning the awards and having that anxiety that I think comes with, well, you own everything, so you're going to get have success, but what you do is not considered art. When you look at the relationship with Pixar, for example, when it went back and forth and, and Disney trying not just to have a commercially successful animated film, but to have one that won awards. That's why Frozen kind of changed their outlook. It becomes kind of a mission to them. I do think that Into the Spider-Verse, getting the critical acclaim probably changed the dynamic quite a bit in how they thought about those films. Because I'll also say at the same time, the Venom film came out, and I was underwhelmed, as probably a, a lot of people were. I mean,
0: I certainly was. But the Venom film say what you want about the Venom film, and I there's a lot I can say about the Venom film, it still made, you know, $856 million. No, it, it
1: did. And it shows that they can do that
0: with those properties.
1: And so the tension that, that's really interesting to watch from the outside about how do you make art which is connected to these receptacles of rights that the companies are fighting over. When Spider-Man shows up in the MCU, he can have MJ, but he can't have Mary Jane Watson, because that's a Sony property that they haven't allowed to be used, right? There's all this negotiation about how each character will get a representation, but not the representational freedom of use. And so there's just constant back and forth that happens. And I don't know, it, it's just been so interesting to me to watch the Marvel library be slowly reassembled through all of these deals and mergers until we get to a point where what what, what is this going to look like when Disney, if they ever do, get all of these characters and all of the rights back. And I have a feeling that what's going to happen in the, in the short term is it's going to be all of them except Spider-Man, but that's kind of where we're at.
0: I mean, there is a, and this is a, sort of a deep dive because you have to be a pretty big comic nerd to understand the history of, of this particular character. But I, the thing that's super interesting to me is all of the rumors swirling around Black Panther 2. Oh, yeah. Right. And the possible slash probable appearance of Namor. The
1: oh, I think he's in it if the teaser posters have any <laughs> credibility. And and probably that's gonna happen. When Adventures of Superman got really popular in the fifties, there was a run on characters, and one of the characters that timely suddenly put out books that had The Submariner, the Human Torch, and Captain America again in the fifties, and Universal had optioned Namor, and somehow through all the years that property has remained just located with universal, or at least no one wanted to poke the situation, given that the other character in that mix was the Hulk. And all the careful stepping around getting to use that important character might have kept, you know, Namor off the table altogether. But the idea that that character is coming back into the MCU, at least theoretically at this point, is huge. That's one of their prime original characters. I mean, when people say, I really liked the Aquaman movie, I'm like, well, Aquaman came out in what, 1966? Namor is a 1940 character. Aquaman's the copy. And it's going to be really interesting to see what Marvel could do getting that very prime original character back into the fold.
0: The interesting part about Namor is how many stops and starts have Existed on that character up until now, and how many times there's been this rumor of, Oh, we're finally gonna get that Submariner film, right? That never materialized, it's been promised some way since the 50s, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, if Namor does end up appearing in the second Black Panther movie that MCUs him as well, regardless of where his rights lie, he's really the last standing thing that's still floating around out there. Now that for sure, both Fantastic Four and the X universe have gone back into Disney. Submariner is really the only one that's still left floating out there somewhere.
1: I mean, and think about all the reclamations. They got Doctor Strange back. They got Daredevil back. All of the characters associated with Daredevil, Ghost Rider, you know, all all of these other characters that have been floating, they have just sometimes one by one and sometimes group by group just yanked them all back. So I I think you're right. Namor represents a huge watershed moment where it's kind of down to the MCU versus Spider-Man over in Sony at this point. And so that's why it is so important that this relationship and this connection be allowed. Because I, I think that everything that we've said about the film projects and who owns what, at the end of the day, it is very unlikely that Sony is ever going to release Spider-Man if they can help it because of the video game dollars that they get. On the other hand, when Spider-Man films are made in tandem between Disney in Marvel and Sony, really good things happen for all involved. And I think that's going to be kind of a driving force. I, I, I'm one of those that's glad that relationship came back together because that will be better. It's better, even if you're a person who likes Spider-Man in the MCU, it is still better for Sony to make money off of that, to keep that relationship positive.
0: Bringing this all the way back to the beginning of the conversation... This is what we mean when we say political economy. This is what we mean when we say how politics and power function has everything to do with what kinds of cultural productions happen, what kind of popular culture gets made. Because if the licensing deals don't come together, we simply don't get the popular culture. We just don't get it. Right and all of that has to do with two companies jockeying for economic power over that cultural production.
1: Well, but it also shapes the content as well when it does get made. Just thinking about the Fantastic 4 again for a minute, when Fox had that, you know, they had two relatively successful films and then the one that that wasn't. But even then as somebody who somewhat enjoyed watching the Fantastic 4 on the big screen, you had a fantastic four that could have Doctor Doom but could not have Namor. Again because they didn't have those rights either. And you think about all the different comic book mythological moments that are built up in that storyline and how these stories have to get wrapped around new ideas that skip over components. I mean, by far the more dramatic was, you know, Marvel's efforts to explain how they could use certain characters who were no longer allowed to be called mutants. Creating a whole new platform around the Inhumans, and now we're going to have Marvel Television that is very Inhuman-centric, so that we can switch mutants that we have the rights to to be Inhumans, not mutants. Or, in the case of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, to be some kind of alien-human hybrid experiment with a dash of who knows what in it, just to get around not being able to say these characters are
0: born with these powers because have never been able to. Interestingly enough, though, Quicksilver specifically existing in both the Fox universe and the Marvel universe. Right. He's the one character that has gone back. Like, there were two Quicksilver appearances out at basically the same time. Exactly. And they were kind of raising the bar for each
1: other in some ways and stealing each other's thunder and, you know, all of that. I mean, it was a mess. And that, of course, is because Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch were both core members of the X-Men franchise and the Avengers franchise. So, you know, that was a, a weird set of contractual relationships that got formed so that both companies could use those characters at the same time. Now, this raises the big question, though. For people that are are Marvel fans, which is now that the X-Men rights and the Fantastic Four rights and all of these rights are coming back to Disney, does this signal a big reboot of some of the core, not just continuity? I mean, continuity comes and goes in comics, and, and I think there's ways they can wrap it around, but a reboot in terms of certain story premises and storytelling logics that are used now that you have access to all these other elements that before you didn't. That may be one of the reasons why people have a lot of confusion about, you know, you think about the various phases and what's coming next. And we know some of the titles and we're starting to see some of the things from the next phase of the of the MCU. But I suspect one of the biggest challenges is going to be repositioning all of those content franchises into a new place because of the new
0: available text that they want to start incorporating. It's going to be a new cultural product. Oh, it's absolutely going to be a new cultural product. It's going to be a completely redesigned package, but Marvel has proven to be really good at that. Yeah, they have, especially recently. They've proven to be really, really good at that with The number of things that Marvel has been able to pull off that categorically should not work. (laughs) You know, we've talked about this several times on this show. Guardians of the Galaxy shouldn't have worked. It just shouldn't have. (laughs) I would argue that neither Captain Marvel nor the freeform show Cloak and Dagger should have worked either. They all work. Not only do they work, but Cloak and Dagger is actually probably the best Marvel live-action production they've ever done of anything.
1: But let's go back to the beginning of that franchise and remember the huge rhetorical shifts that came about with Thor and the Asgardians, right? So Iron Man does well, so what's going to happen now? We need to take some more risks. We're going to try to bring all of these core Avengers characters. What do we do with Thor? Thor's the god of thunder, and the Asgardians... And Disney knows all about cultural conflict and markets and and tends to be very conservative despite the popular reputation they get. And if you remember, all of that discussion about, well, Asgardians aren't really gods, they're really just aliens from another dimension, but if humans saw them, they would think of them as gods, which is why they're called that, but they're not really, except you know, when you get to 2017 and Thor Ragnarok, all of a sudden all that falls away. And it's like, no, we're gods. And each god has an ability. And hey, we just, we're just we taking that back because they had achieved so much traction with so many audiences that one, they'd moved past that cultural hand-wringing moment of being very concerned about having anything that has to do with religion going into this text to now I think we all get how this works. We're, we're in a different, different place. And all of a sudden the rhetoric and really the continuity shifted and the fans just don't, the audience just doesn't care because it's a good product and they keep making adjustments along the way. When you add up over the sum, I, I, I'm one of those that is amazed how they pulled this string of films together to make it work um, in conjunction for this, the two-part Infinity War and Endgame finale of those waves of films. On the other hand, if you are really reading close and and looking through the text, there were lots of adjustments and changes made along the way. These, These don't all line up, and that's part of what they're good at is, hey, we went down the wrong road there, or that wasn't as big a deal as we thought, or now we have a chance to move this to a better place,
0: and they can do it, and they do it. They just do it. That's the hard part of it. There is this streamlining of the cultural product that I enjoy as a fan that, as a media scholar, completely horrifies me.
1: Well, right. I mean, because on the one hand, as a consumer of the text, you want the producers of the text to have all of their tools and have all of their capacities to make a high-quality product. I would also point out, on the other hand, the early MCU films were made the way they were because of Constraint. And that's that's kind of a Marvel legacy, which is really interesting. Like, I don't think a lot of people remember or realize that you go back to that 1960s Marvel explosion, what led to that was Constraint. They got to publish eight books a month because... DC Comics was distributing all of their comics, and that's how many they told them they were allowed to do. was eight. So how do you build this interrelated universe out of eight? That's a formula. You're not going to see this character every month, but we're going to tell you in other books what's going on with that character so that you can kind of follow this threading version of storytelling. It's like the the constraints become opportunities. And so I'm just acknowledging that. Well, on the one hand, I am really looking forward to the integration of this. The other side of that, though, is, and, and this will be a, a Chris and I, you know how kind of the Avengers and the X-Men developed in almost separate universes within Marvel for right. a long time? The separation because of, the political economy and the barriers between who owned what actually gave some pretty good X-Men stories without having to worry about superhero anxiety and vice versa. Now bringing all that together, it's going to be interesting to see how it's woven together. But I am, part of me is glad that we got some of those earlier separate franchise stories.
0: Well, sure. Marvel is going to have a difficult time reintegrating particularly the X universe into the MCU. And I think that because there's already so much cultural capital built up around the X universe itself and not all of it positive.
1: (laughs) Well, but that's where they get to remix. I mean, that's where we look back to Spider-Man. Sony had two film franchises and Marvel distills out of that a version of this character and the characters around him that are constrained because of of ownership patterns, but, but also that really kind of get to the essence of what they needed that character to do. I, I kind of think even though now they own the X-Men outright, that's what we're going to see is the established characters we know being kind of the viewpoint by which we're learning. What has Marvel done To recreate this history and recreate, you know, these characters, I think they're going to look different. And I think they're hopefully going to build on the best parts of what worked and leave behind some of the poor parts that didn't.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to see how they do this reintroduction, especially given what they're setting up right now with things like the Eternals. Yeah. I think that they are going to hold off the X-Universe for some time. Probably mostly to get the bad taste of yet another terrible version of Dark Phoenix out of their <laughs> out of everyone's mouths. So I think right now what they'll do is they'll focus on integrating Fantastic Four back in based on the fact that they're going the Eternals route. And I think the best way to get that done is through the Silver Surfer. So I think that's probably where they're
1: going. Sure, though I do remind you that most of the MCU borrows more heavily from the Ultimate line of Marvel Comics than the mainstream. It's a convergence of both, but that's the way that this has worked. Many of the things that fans really love about MCU versions of the character can be traced back to those Ultimate experimentations. And just in that universe, mutants come about as genetic experimentation, and that sets off this force that allows mutants to come about, it does seem pretty convenient to me that the Eternals have that association with their mythos as well.
0: Well, yeah. So, I think, you know, looking at the clock, <laughs> this <laughs> this may have brought us to the point where we say, the corporate consolidation and the political economy thereof, you know, so what? The
1: main thing that I tell my students and that I try to tell people who are interested in these kinds of discussions, that this is always about power. We have this sense that culture is produced to teach us things, to give us spaces, to communicate, to react, where values are expressed. It's very important where even our popular culture comes from because it it becomes the language with which we refer to each other and think about each other and, and interact with each other. And so when we think about issues like political economy, we're trying to determine who gets to set the agenda for how cultural conversation occurs how the stories that we love get written, how they get distributed, and all of that. So it's actually important for us, being in a democracy that likes to at least think of itself as a society where voice and exchanges of expression are free, to pay attention to who owns the predominant number of voices and ability to exert power over cultural conversation. It's just very important for people to keep up with that. Even if we're talking about things that we enjoy, I think especially when we're talking about things that we enjoy,
0: we should all be a little concerned about the big fish eating little fish environment of media at this point in time. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of concerns that go into these consolidations that have nothing to do with cultural production that are problematic. I mean, when all of the media in the world are owned by now essentially four companies as opposed to six, we should all, our ears should be up at this point. Um, We should all be very aware and concerned And that while there are, as I said earlier, cultural benefits as fans, as citizens, we should take a step back.
1: And I'll just throw this in. I know we don't want to extend into a whole new branch of conversation, but not always benefits for fans. You know, AT&T is showing very little interest in the DC television shows that went across their streaming service this year. Because AT&T is more interested in its independent streaming platform, not what fans in a small corner of it are interested when it comes to text. You know, if you like Titans, if you like Swamp Thing, those shows are probably not going to happen much longer. Or if they do, they're going to look very different because the priorities of the owning company are the indeterminate on what can and can't be made. And that's a, that can be unfortunate for fans, too. And I just thought well, I should say that as well.
0: Sure. If you're a fan of the Star Wars Extended Universe, you probably aren't a big fan of them being owned by Disney right now. That's right. Well, so uh, as Rick just pointed out, we could probably go on and on about this forever, but we can't. So, (laughs) for Dr. Rick Stevens, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been The Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Thanks for being on the show again, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you in two weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out the deconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.